How's everybody doing? Doing okay? All right. Can you turn me down a little bit, guys? Just a little bit, because I'm going to rock here in a second. I want everyone to stand up one more time. Everyone stand up one more time. How many of you are feeling groovy today? You're feeling groovy? You, uh, how many of you, how many of you, uh, Feel like you have a little bit of rhythm in your soul. Do you, anyone raise your hand at me? You got a little bit of rhythm in your soul? My grandson Graham is watching. My granddaughter Juju is watching. Emmy's too little. She's in a swing. But those guys are watching and they have a lot of groove in their soul already. So this is for them and this is for you. I want to teach you a little tune, all right? I'll teach you a little tune. So before we start, before I give you the lyrics of, of the tune, I want, you to, I want you to do what Graham does when he hears a song. He goes like this. All right? I want you all to start doing that. Come on, from front to back. Come on, live stream. Stand up. Oh, man, you got the groove. Listen to that. I'm going to teach you a tune, all right? Graham, you watching? Juju watching? Goes like this. Buddy, you're a boy. Make... No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I wanted to see how many other people in here uh, weren't saved before they got saved. Anybody? All right, here we go. Let's go. Ready? Goes like this. Repeat this. Oh Lord, oh my Lord. Time has come for turning. Oh Lord, take this world. Come on. Turn it upside down. Live stream, come on. Oh Lord, oh my Lord. Some of you are grooving. The time has come for turning. Oh Lord, take this world. Come on. Turn it upside down. You know the whole thing? Let's do it all. Come on. Oh Lord, oh my Lord. The time has come for turning. Oh Lord, take this world. Turn it upside down. Let me hear you stomp and sing it. Oh Lord, oh my Lord. The time has come for turning. Oh, Lord, take this world. Turn it upside down. Turn it upside down. Turn it upside down. Turn it upside down. Wouldn't that be awesome if the Lord would do now what he did during the time of Acts? Where they said the people that have turned the world upside down have come our way, right? Give yourself a high five. You did really good at that. You did really good. You may be seated. I hope my buddy and my Juju were, were having a good time with that one too. We're in the gospel for all the people. We're in a study of the gospel of Luke. And today I'm going to talk about the amazing upside down king. Jesus. We are using the New International Version because that's the version Paul used. No, I'm just kidding. But we're using the New International Version, and uh, so we're, uh, we're using that uh, as, we go, as we go through. So um, I want us to stay at the 30,000 feet level and talk about the big ideas, the big picture of Luke in its context so that when, and we will, when we allow the Holy Spirit to take us by the heart and mind and lead us through this amazing account, we will have the historical context. Can you say those two words? Historical context. It's so important we get the context when we read and study God's Word. The historical, 
the grammatical, the contextual context. You know why? Because the Bible can never mean what it never meant. In other words, if the Holy, the Holy Spirit will not give a 21st century preacher or reader a new revelation that changes the meaning of the revelation he gave to the writer. It's so important we know that. Because the Bible can only mean what it meant to the one who wrote it. And it can never mean what it never meant. Do you know there was a time in the United States of America, maybe back in the 40s, that if you would have walked into a party, a guy, and you walked up and saw your friend and he was happy and you said, you look really gay today. That would have just been like, yeah, I'm really happy. But if you walked into a club today and you saw your friend and you said, you look really gay today, he might say, I am not, right? Same word, different context, different meaning, right? Nothing, nothing I'm trying to knock, I'm just trying to tell you the historical context of words mean what they meant in that historical context. Why is that so important? Because if we want to get a clue, we have to get the context. And the reason why I want to stop for a while and stay in the context, drill down in it, is because we need to see the gospel from the time in which the gospel happened. And we need to know what Luke was thinking because what Luke was thinking is what the text means because, as Gordon Fee said in his great book, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. So one of the amazing things we will discover in Luke's account, we're going to look at today in the next couple of weeks, is the motif of amazement. Luke has structured his gospel to show you that the people of the Greco-Roman world and that culture they were amazed at this story they heard of Jesus. Luke was truly amazed. And as you'll see it throughout the Gospel of Luke, he says it over and over again, and the people were amazed. Do you know who they're amazed at? They're amazed at Jesus. How many of you believe Jesus is still amazing? Jesus is still amazing. Yeah. Well, the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about, that Jesus lived out, was like looking at the world upside down. That's why we sang that song. And that amazed Luke. We're going to talk today about the amazing upside-down king. What I mean by that is I want us to see the contrast between the emperor, the empire of Rome, the kings of the earth, compared to the way Jesus lived as a king, the amazing, upside-down King Jesus. Luke chapter 2, and it's not Christmas, but I'm going to read you a Christmas verse. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, all right? So that brings Mary and Joseph and the baby to be born to David's town, Bethlehem. Now, Later on in that chapter, this happens. The angels appear to these men on a hillside and say this, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. That's the anointed king, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, before the manger became Christmasized, 
it meant you're going to find the king promised, and he's going to be lying in that, you know, look for where the cows are putting their mouth. That's where he's going to be. That's where he's going to spend his first evening, his first night. When did Jesus live? Luke tells us in the days of Caesar Augustus. When did Luke write his gospel? In the time of the early Roman kings. So important. The Caesars, high and mighty in contrast to the true emperor of eternity, one in a palace and one in some sort of guest house, stable-like place. Our king, our amazing king, would amaze us even at his birth. In that setting of his birth, God is turning the world upside down, or is he turning it right side up? That song we just sang was the chorus of a song Michael Card wrote, and the lyrics of the verses say this, the lame will walk and the deaf will talk, the time has come for turning. The blind will see and the slave be free, turn it upside down. The rich man, he will wail and mourn. The time has come for turning. He'll take the mighty from their thrones. Turn it upside down. The poor will laugh and the beggar will sing. He'll feed the hungry with good things. Woe to the rich, woe to the free. Woe to the righteous ones who say they see. And blessed are the sufferers. To those who wail and mourn, the world is turning upside down, and you can be reborn. On that night, heaven was rejoicing, not caring at this point that Caesar and Herod missed the moment. Heaven felt no pressure to stop by the palace of the powerful or ask the permission of the Jewish leading council or the rich to get first seats at the event of all events. No. The God of heaven has ways of his own when he sets up his throne. That's what my, Bob, my friend Bob Dylan wrote in his first gospel album, Slow Train, Coming. And then my other friend Isaiah said, God's ways are not our ways. The God of heaven has thoughts that are not our thoughts. And this king would be content, listen, this king would be content in heaven as well to let the lower middle class night shift workers in rural Bethlehem have their own personal, private, front row seat of viewing, thank you very much, and he was good with it. That's upside down. It'd be like God, it was in our time, he passed up the president, he passed up the Congress, he passed up every spiritual leader and the great known preachers of our day, and he, and, he, and he showed up with angels behind the dumpster at Denny's in the middle of the night where the guys were throwing the, the excess food out and just told them, and he was good with it. Suddenly, that's upside down, or is it right side up? That's amazing. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. An upside down king. In what ways? Well, first, heaven was going to show us that the way the world defines the power and victory of the gods is upside down. The Roman god Jupiter Mars, Neptune, 
the Greek goddess Nike, the Roman goddess Victoria. The gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman world were all about might and muscle and fear and unapproachable and unpredictable. The Romans, Jupiter, king of the gods, was known for throwing lightning bolts and causing lightning storms. His son, Mars, was the god of war. His brother, Neptune, was the god of the turbulent seas. From Encyclopedia Britannica, I found out this. Nike, Nike, was a Greek goddess that later was named Victoria by the Romans. Nike was, a pers- was the goddess of victory, portraying trophies distributed with her outspread wings over the victor in a competition. Her functions referred to success, not only in war, but in everything. They changed the name from Nike to Victoria. Romans worshipped the deities. In the Greek culture, the gods were unattainable and unapproachable. Mortals would have no place with them or among them. The Romans changed that some and challenged every Roman citizen to aspire to be like the gods, to be like the gods. In contrast, the real emperor of the cosmos would be touchable and associate with the lowly. His culture was wowed, Luke's culture, a Greek. His culture was wowed by the achiever, the athletic, well-cut man and woman, the skilled orator. Greek culture honored and admired the intelligentsia. And if you could speak with great skill, even if what you said was nothing at all, if you said nothing at all well, you were in. Poor, out. Old has-beens, out. The losers, definitely out. You're not Nikkei. Those who didn't wear Nikes, out. The philosopher, those with all the answers, in. Those who thought they had all the answers, in. The low-educated, out. Illiterate, out. Out. And then the upside-down king came. And this amazed Luke. And it amazed Luke's people. As Wesley would write, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The upside-down king, think of this, into the waters with the sinners he walks, putting himself under the yoke of Zechariah's son, the baptizer, the locust eater, the thunder in the desert. Jesus, the Nazarene, would be like the ark Noah built, which would be a safe place, welcoming male and female of every kind into his embrace. The God of the cosmos walked into the water, and it was a river filled with sins exposed and sins confessed, and he walked into their water. A river to fulfill all righteousness for his Father. 
he walked into their water. And for those separated from God, unable to attain God's righteousness, he got wet and walked into their water. And you know what? This pleased heaven's emperor, and he said so out loud, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so, in that water, the dove comes. The dove comes and rests on his shoulders. Just like the dove came back into the ark to the man of grace, Noah, his name is a reference to grace and peace and rest. Because it's act one of a two-volume set penned by Luke. Luke. And the dove comes back to the ark in the water until the flood is over. And Luke's account starts with the manger all the way to the Mount of Olives when he ascends. And when he ascends, Jesus, first begotten from the dead as one new man, a life-giving spirit like Paul says, that life-giving one at the Father's right hand release not a dove, but a rushing, mighty wind. And it is distributed upon every single believer, Jews and God-fearing Greeks from Samaria and even to the Roman provinces and, and as the new body of Jesus. You with me, anybody? The temple is now mobile and the body of Jesus has exponentially expanded in the people born and baptized not just in water but in the Spirit. You'll receive power in the Holy Spirit, and you'll be clothed with power from on high. And the new body of Jesus is to go out and find the leaf of the new earth. For a new group of people were to be harvested for what God has cleansed all throughout the empire. Do not call common or unclean or outcast. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I know where I'm going. <laughs> I can't wait to get there. So let's go back to John's baptism. The Lamb of God. We sang about him. He came to cleanse the temple of God, but in a new way. Because the temple of God, the real temple of God, would come into the waters. Right? Because it's a mobile temple in a man, Christ Jesus. As he would say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. How many of you are with me? He would cleanse the temples of each human soul. And with his own humble life, he would fulfill the righteous requirements of the law that none of us could meet. And he would make the sacrifice of himself, and it would cleanse even the heavens as well, says the Hebrew writer. This is that king, in contrast to Caesar, in contrast to Herod. He's going to do all this as a man, the anointed one, son of man, not as Jupiter, not as Mars, not as Hercules. He's not come to throw lightning bolts at people. He's not come to declare war on the wounded or the wanderer. No. He's come to declare war on the one who tattooed them with his poison pen and came to declare war on the serpent. 
Not like Nikkei or Victoria calling only the strong, only the winners, only the beautiful, only the achievers, and only the I've got it all and more crowd. No. He's approachable in humility. And he's coming to those who have been mowed down by the oppressor. He's coming to help those who have been raped and ravaged by the tormentor of hell. He's come close to them, humbly himself, lowly himself. He has a dove on his shoulders for them. And a lion's roar toward the demonic powers. And those religious leaders who have aligned with them to shut the kingdom of God up in their face. It's upside down. Or is it right side up? With a dove on his shoulders as he walks in the steps of a lowly peasant carpenter. Heaven's emperor is wearing different clothes. Robes of righteousness, but they're not seen. Calling bruised and battered and bound people out of prison and into the embrace of God. But it's done in disguise as a carpenter, as an itinerant preacher from the hills of the Galilee where nothing good comes from there, not the robes of splendor of which known by Daniel and Isaiah seeing the ancient of days, no, in a garment that has no form or dignity to attract anyone to it but a garment that was willing to cover a sinner and fight the serpent off the sinner. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He's going to face the malevolent prince as the steps out of the waters, full of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to go into the wilderness and face the wild beast and the maniacal narcissist, the one who revolted and declared war against his father's glory and his father's kingdom. And Luke is amazed. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus walks into the ring as a son of man in humble obedience to suffer according to the Father's plan. Are you still amazed? Yes. Don't you love Roberta? <laughs> She's my friend on Facebook. It's upside down. He's coming in humility. Luke 4, and the devil says to him, listen closely, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answers, it's written, man. You notice that? Shall not live on bread alone. What's he doing? He's laid aside his power of privilege to walk like you and me. Of his own choice, Obedience to his Father. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's walking in the wilderness for the Moses generation who missed it. He's walking into the wilderness for the people who did what was right in their own eyes. In Judges. In the fallen kings. All the way to Malachi's prophecy. He's walking in the wilderness for you and for me. And he's walking, laying aside his privilege to tell the stones, to become bread for himself. He says, I'm going to need to sustain my life in total reliance on God as you and I have to do. So then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant 
all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it. I can give it. I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it, it will all be yours. And Jesus answers, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Amazing, right? Here's what Satan is saying. You want it all, Jesus? I know Caesars do. The leaders of the world get off on this. The glitter, the gold, the glory, the strong ruling over the weak. Here, it, it is yours. I can give it to whomever I choose. Want the power to strike fear in those who don't come your way? Want to be so big that everyone knows your name? Bow down to me and it will all be yours. But Jesus knows that the devil's it rhymes like something else that has it at the end. Jesus shows us that the it Satan offers is no it at all. It's something else. The real it is knowing Jesus. The great expositor G. Campbell Morgan in his masterpiece on Luke called The God Who Cares talks about how this is what attracted Luke. The master passion of Greek idealism and Greek philosophy was that of the perfection of the person and the personality. The thinking in three centuries of virile thought in Greek history was not particularly concerned with human interaction relationships, but with personality excelling and the question of perfecting the personality. She sought for the perfecting of the individual, and she crafted her ideal out into marble, the ideal man. And then I added this so you can read it. This then is Luke, a man somewhere, somehow, sometime, and none knows when it happened, was led to Christ, and I love this. And he found in Jesus the personality who fulfilled all his dreams, and I love this, and smashed the mold of Greek thinking of greatness, for it was too small to hold him. Not sure Caesar did that, but Jesus did, and Luke was amazed. And so was the Greco-Roman world. Power in a different manner than the gods. He walked into the waters of our world and struggled with us in humility. What else? As Ollie showed us, he had an upside and down view of compassion. Ollie read it. We prayed about it. We received it. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground. As Ollie said, Note the detail Luke is describing. Think about it, the emotion in this man. He's in desperation. Have you ever reached a place in your life where your prayers went from a request to a beg? Have you ever had to beg God? I have. When you're begging God, your whole world is over. And only God can help. And he begs Jesus, and I love this, verse 13, and Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, right? Compassion for the untouchable. He reached out his hand and touched the man. That statement, I think, amazed Luke. That statement is what converted pagans. That story and the one starring in it 
who bypassed the it, moved Roman soldiers. And Paul said in Philippians, even members of Caesar's own household. That statement, and Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, in my opinion, is the key. Listen. That statement, and Jesus reached out and touched the man, is the key to reaching lost people. It's the key to reaching cynical people. It's the key to reaching people burned out on church. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. People on the opposite side of the field. What statement? And Jesus, Jesus' people, reached out their hand and touched humanity. We're going to read where women of barrenness will have their grace, disgrace removed. We're going to read about a woman of the street who will be pointed out as the epitome of a worshiper. We're going to read about an elderly widow woman with a penny placed in an offering plate shown to be the greatest giver by Jesus. Jesus is going to embrace the outcast literally. And he's going to show that God loves the down and outer and also invites the up and outer. And he doesn't discriminate toward either one. Lepers in. Shady tax collectors in Rome's back pocket taking your hard-earned money and hated. Well, God loves them too. Ask Matthew and Zacchaeus. And we might have to be all right with that. Are we going to declare our conservative Christianity to the point that half the rest of America will tune us out? Or the other way around? You're going to reach somebody by calling him a libtard? Or a maniac? Go for it. It's part of that it that Satan talks about. Rhymes with something else. What are you thinking I'm rhyming it with? Where's your bra? You got me all wrong. Coming to bring down the king in a garden, enemy troops. Upside down mercy. Imagine Caesar, whether it's Julius or Augustus, Claudius, Caligula, whoever, imagine them being surrounded by a coup that was coming, finding Caesar in a garden to take him out. What would his inner circle of centurions be doing waiting on the attack? Would they be locked and loaded? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? They're in the garden. And they see they're coming for their king. Should we strike with our swords? Makes sense, right, if you're protecting the king? And one of them, Luke doesn't tell us. He gives Peter a break. He's already nailed him on the, uh, and Jesus looked at it. Remember last week? So he's giving Peter a break. He doesn't say it. Mark tells on him. And John, 
Simon Peter, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest, ready, cutting off his ear. No, Luke says right ear. See that? Isn't Luke cool with the details? He cut off his right ear. Hey, picture it. Now picture being there. Okay, picture you're standing in line to get into the LOH because everybody's coming. And you got to wait in the line. And they don't allow so many in. And you're next to get in, but the person in front of you has been saving space for five more people. They're uncles and aunts and cousins, and they pull up late. And they get in front of you and go in, and then, and then Tim Scott says, you can't come in. <laughs> can you imagine? That would never, Tim would be like, you can take my place, right? But picture that. And all of a sudden, somebody disgruntled, and we don't have anybody like that in our church, and we don't, pulls out a knife and cuts the dude's ear off right there. Can you imagine? Cuts it, the right one. Cuts it off, man. I mean, doesn't just like, just scuff it or leave a little, cuts his ear off. Dude. Okay, but that's, that's weird. That's never going to happen. And that would be unjust if it didn't happen. You'd be like, oh my gosh, over a seat in a church? But this is something else. This is something else. This is, this is the man. This is the man they've given three, they've given three years. This is God on earth, they think. This is the Son of God. You've got to protect the Son of God. He's got something to do. And, and Simon said, be far from you. You're not going to go die. I'm taking over this. You're not dying. Right? So out comes the sword, off goes the ear. And Jesus says, no more of this. No more of what? No more of this. No more of this pulling out the sword and cutting people up, shaming people off, backing people down. No more of this. Do you hear that? We're in an upside-down kingdom. In the kingdom of the world, you don't go for the ear, you go for the neck. In my kingdom, you touch the man's ear. Come on now. There's nobody in this church, including me, that walks that out. And heals it. Who, who is this? This guy came to bring Jesus down. This guy came to turn him over. This guy came to turn him over the Romans so they could crucify him on a cross. And Jesus picks one of them and, who, and pu puts it back on, heals him. Come on. Are you amazed at him yet? Here's another one. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and he released the man. Oh, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Who is this? This is the person. This is the one who created everything out of nothing. This is the one who, in the days of Noah, spoke and said, now, and the fountains of the great deep burst and flooded the world and saved only eight. That's who's standing there, who is being mocked, spat upon, beaten. Jupiter and Mars would have been hurling thunderbolts. 
the gods of the skies out of reach would have been stepping in, but not this one. Luke 23, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Unless I bore you with a little bit about crucifixion, I'm going to do it anyway. David Guzik in his commentary describes it like this. When the nail was driven through the wrists, it severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve produced excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and often gave the victim a claw-like grip in his hands. And beyond that, the major effect of crucifixion was to restrict normal breathing. The weight of the body, and remember he was nailed in his feet as well. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and the shoulders tended to fix the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state and hinder you from being able to breathe back out. The lack of respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps which further hindered breathing. And in order to get a breath, the victim had to push against his feet, flex his elbows, and pull up on those nails to exhale. The reason why crucifixion usually killed people quickly was because you can't do that very often. To get a good breath, you'd have to do that, putting all the weight, lifting as well with Jesus as he would do it. The beatings that he took on his back would rub against the cross wood. Now, I said all that to say, when he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, that's what he was feeling. Does this amaze us? When at any minute, even tempted by the prince of it, through the mouths of the jackal priests, telling him, if you're really him, come down and we'll believe you. Now me, I'd say, I'm coming down, but you're not even going to have an instant to believe, because I'm sending you somewhere, right? Don't look at me like you've never done that when someone stole your parking lot <laughs> space. Me too. How many of you need Jesus a little bit in your life? This is upside down. This isn't natural. This isn't normal. How you doing? <laughs> On top of that cross was a placard commanded by Pilate, the governor of Rome, representing Caesar, to write, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The only crime he had was being born a king. Being born a king. There stands a column piece in Zile, Turkey, where they say Julius Caesar said, Veni, vedi, vici, 4,000 years old. He came, 
He saw, he conquered. Because that's what Caesars do. Attain godhood like Jupiter. Mars. 47 AD, they said, is when it happened. Battle of Zella. And he, t- and, he r- and he writes that statement back to the Congress, the Senate of Rome, saying, swift victory by me. He came, he saw, and conquered. This man's dying on a cross. And the sign is basically saying, God is the emperor, the emperor is God, Rome rules. Swift victory. Yet there's something that the king on the cross says. The last thing he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. It doesn't look like a victory, does it? But it's not a victory over Caesar that he came for. It's a victory over the prince of it. It's a victory over the serpent. For only as a man could he die, and only as a man could he destroy the one, glory to your name, who held the power of death and free those who were spellbound by his venom that ran through all our DNA since the garden. And he said, it's finished in absolute pain. And the spiritually blind and the deaf saw the end of this man, but the devil knew what was really coming to an end. What do you see? Luke said, I see an amazing Savior. I see an amazing King. Michael Card wrote another song, wrote a lot of great songs, right, Carl? One called The Nazarene. Love this part. Talking about Jesus. He came, he saw, he surrendered all so that we might be born again. And the fact of his humanity was there for all to see, for he was unlike any other man, but yet so much like me. This amazing upside-down king can bring us right side up through the power in that cross. That's what Paul is talking about. Luke's friend, he describes it like this. The Jews ask for signs. They want a Moses that can part Red Seas. They want a David who can kill Goliath. But in this story, Goliath kills David. Right? David's killed on a cross. The Greeks seek wisdom. I got to figure that out. I have to understand this logically. But we preach The king, anointed of God, crucified like an animal. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. Far be it from you, Lord. Don't demean the dignity of David and his sons. Stumbling block and foolishness to the intelligentsia of the Greco-Roman world. Although they believe in a God that throws lightning bolts. Yet, to all those who are called, are you called? Is he calling you through this message? This is the, you know what? It's through the foolishness of preaching that people get saved. And sometimes I feel like it's through the fool of a preacher that some get saved. But in any case, as he's calling you, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. That's upside down. And the wisdom of God. Here's the upside down kingdom. God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. In order to become strong in the Lord, you have to get into that water and identify yourself as a sinner, needing a Savior, and what you find to your delight on the other side of go to the cross is a Savior who's longing to welcome you in and cover you in His garments and begin to lift your life because nobody, nobody, He turns no one away who comes to Him. Will you come to him right now? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for every man, as Ollie said, those who don't feel worthy, and those who are high and mighty, and realize that's the it of the world. And there is another way, another king, and another kingdom where you, can, you don't have to hide your weakness and hide your fear behind muscle and might and achievement and approval. You can come just as you truly are, in need like everybody else, and allow Him to strike you in the place of your heart in a manner that will resurrect your soul. Father, I pray you do it for everyone watching, everyone listening now and in another time that is there now to be saved and to come to know you. And Lord, I pray for our church I pray for every person in in the body of Christ, in the mobile temple of God, that we would remember this one thing. It's through the touch of Jesus that the whole Roman world was turned upside down. Do it through us, mighty, holy spirit of God. Do it through us in Jesus' name.